though our world has turned to scat It's better because of you and that's a fact We're in this together, you and I We're in this together, you and I Welcome back to You'll Understand When You're Younger. I'm Jordan. And I'm Brian. And we're a father and son duo who like scouring the corners of the internet and then discussing it with each other. Today, we are going to talk about water pumps, specifically hand water pumps. Um, And we'll get into that in just a minute. But dad, first, do you have a weekly question you would like to ask? I do. What outdoor activity have you not tried as yet, but you would like to try? Uh... Well, I've been told that a part of my performance evaluation next year for work will be golf, but um, <laughs> good, good luck. But I don't really want to do that, so th- that wouldn't be my answer. But I would like to do skiing slash snowboarding. It's funny we grew up in Minnesota, but we weren't really a big winter sports family. We were right. a sports family, but yeah. it was the more conventional team sports, not the individual. Um, ride down a a snowy hill. Absolutely. Uh, so I would I'd like to get into that because there's the whole culture that goes along with it, especially out here in New England. In the same way, sure. like skiing's big out here, whereas skiing and snowboarding is like big in the Rockies for everyone. They also have like the Northern Appalachian Mountains that people like going up and skiing down. Uh, Sunday right. River people talk about all the time out here, and that's only I think an hour north. So. Nice. And I know that when your mom and I were out in Vermont, there's some really big ski and snowboarding resorts. One of the places we actually visited was Jay's Peak. And I can imagine that that was, that would be spectacular during the winter because it was awesome during the summer. So having the snow covers and and such would be great, but you're right. There's a bunch of them in Southern uh, New Hampshire and then in different parts of Vermont as well. How about you, dad? What's your answer? Uh, Mountain climbing. Fair enough. It's one that uh, I will will never do at this point, and it's one that I think would be a blast. Specifically, it would have been fun to do like, like hardcore mountain climbing. I'm talking like with with the belays and things like that. I don't know that that Everest would have ever been on the list because there's just so much risk with that, and I'm not also quite that. takes a ton of time out of your life. You got to. It does, and money. Yeah. Uh, but I think that mountain climbing itself would would have been something that would have been fun to get into, especially living out here in and around mountains. There are spots where you can't do things like, you know, mountain climbing in Yosemite here, but there are spots where you can do some some nice bouldering and mountain climbing. So I think that would have been fun to get into. There is that, that again, takes a lot of time and effort that would have been a challenge to do after having gotten married and having kids uh, th- that would have been something that would have taken far more time than I would have had and probably wanted to do at the time. So at, at this age, I look back and I, I do watch a lot of documentaries about mountain climbing and I, I really thoroughly enjoy the sport from, from afar. So I think it would have been something that it would have been fun to try, but it also was something that would have, it just didn't fit into my lifestyle, especially where we were living. I wouldn't say never though. I mean, you said you'd never enjoy, Running is a regular recreational activity. And here I am running right. every day. And loving it. If only yes, somebody absolutely. could have told you that you would have loved it. But <laughs> and, and if I would have believed them. 
and you're set in your ways. So here's what I'll say. Maybe one day you'll be a mountain climber yet. Not an Everest climber. I'm not going to give no. you that much credit, but No, that's not happening. You might might scale a wall or two. We'll see. We'll see. Uh good weekly question, dad. I think we should jump okay. into the feature story. Sounds great. This week's feature story all stems from this week's this week in media, which is oh. I w- was running, I'm running out of shows to watch, and right. that always makes me do something desperate. And I don't have Hulu or Disney Plus right now because Taylor had it and I was sharing his, and then he decided it wasn't worth the money, so he stopped subscribing to it. Sure. And that was fine. I also agreed that it wasn't worth the money, which is why I have not resubscribed. <laughs> but I'm left with whatever's on Netflix, which is what you guys pay for and again if you didn't pay for it then i just would have no streaming services and then i'd have to really spend my time reading versus just saying i spend my time reading and lying to people (laughs) sure but all this to say on netflix they were advertising the walking dead and you and i've talked about the walking dead we're not zombie people Right. Not a lot of interest around that, but I saw that it had 11 seasons and I knew it was from AMC oh, during their yeah. golden era. So I was like, this seems like if I can get into it, that it will be a very bingeable show. And I love a good bingeable show. Yes. Well, it's a very good bingeable show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's uh, on the dark side. It's gory and disgusting and sometimes i do have to look away from the television but the it's also like it's a thriller okay in a in a really good way and it's not horary it's very survivalist e a dramatization of like what would happen sure and i think like they pose some good like questions about how you would survive in a world where there's really no hope of us reorganizing because the problem is too widespread. Sure. And like a lot of the threat comes from one, your natural surroundings. And then two, the other people who survive, not the people who, not the zombies who are walking around attacking you. I think it's it's interesting, interesting show, but I got then like thinking about like, oh yeah, what would I do in that scenario? What would I do in this scenario? And like, what would I bring to like a group of, of people who are trying to survive this thing? And so like, you know, you've got to learn agriculture again, if you can, you know, get a plot of land, you got to learn how to get clean water, all that stuff that we kind of take for granted now. Um, And along with that came the idea of like, yeah, what would we do for clean water? If you are in an apocalyptic scenario where you can't, you know, camp necessarily in the most obvious place for water by a riverbed, because then you're very susceptible to people coming to hunt you. Like how how are you going to drink? And like, you can scavenge the towns for water bottles, but eventually you're going to have to find out how to source your own water. Right enter the water pump because i was like man well how did people used to do that if and obviously cities when you look at a satellite rendering of the world mostly revolve around people being on bodies of water rivers lakes whatever some of that for transportation some of that for for drinking purposes uh but i just thought 
somebody had some ingenuity along the way where the old style thousands year old conventional well that we see in the movies is just a really deep hole and a bucket and people just drop a rope at the bucket and they pull up fresh clean water which seems magical because <laughs> why is there water sitting in the well how is it clean to drink and where does the water come from kind of situation but sure. i didn't have want you ever go have ahead you ever have you ever had to do that have you ever had to get water from the bottom of a well with a bucket no, I'm guessing you have. Is that I why did. you've said it? Okay. Yeah. Oh, in in West Africa. Yeah, in in Guinea, I had to do that. That was uh, not an easy experience. It was very challenging. So and not not the least of which because it was heavy because you had to drop it 50 feet and pull up a you know two gallons of water which is is heavy, but without spilling it. Right. Well, you have an open bucket, right? So you drop it down there, and what does that bucket do? float Mm -hmm. so you can't get the water in it right you had to manipulate the rope up and down a bit and sideways a bit so that it would start to get some water into the pail itself but sometimes what would happen is that it would just get a little bit in there and it would just kind of turn itself so it was upright you know so there's just water in the bottom of it but not thinking it enough so that you could fill it up and so you had to do a lot of a lot of work just to get the water into the pail. And then once you got it in there, then you had to pull up the 50 feet. Now you have two gallons of water. You're like, sweet, that's awesome. How much do I need? Well, we need about 80 to 100 gallons. Right. So that's somebody's job or two people's job all day is just to get water. Yes. It's very painful. And that that's, so was yours just like loosely tied to a rope or was it a pulley system where you were lowering the bucket? I'm, so I'm curious. There, yeah, so it, I wouldn't say it was a, a pulley system per se because there wasn't a pulley, but what happened was there was like a, uh, it was an open uh, an open uh, well and then it had a, uh, a, I don't know, I, I call, call it an arch, I guess, if you will, that the rope laid over the top of, right? And so there was no pulley there that made it easy, but there was like a, a little bit of a, a groove that was cut out by the rope being used over and over again. Yeah. But it slid back and forth in. And but so, so so it wasn't like a circle. It wasn't a long circle of rope. It was a rope with one end tied to the top and one end tied to the bucket. Is that right? Right. Yeah, exactly. So yes, you had it one of it anchored uh, at the top so that it didn't fall back in. Correct. And that went over that arch. And so you yeah, you would drop it down and, and just like I said, kind of manipulate it over the arch a little bit so that things would, would fill up. It's interesting. So that was in what, 2015, 2014? Uh, 2013. 2013. Yes. Uh, that's just fascinating, the disparity in like yeah. adequate access to water. And obviously, absolutely, sub-Saharan Africa and Saharan Africa are never going to be full of water. But it's interesting that despite that, they haven't uh, they haven't had widespread success in implementing easier versions for water harvesting. Um, it's, a lot of it's because there's just a lack of of money for infrastructure and a lack of, a lack of skill sets for the infrastructure. I yeah, think a lot of it is. So yeah, the the Marquette chapter of engineering without borders that was always their 
project was building different like well wells and hydraulic and irrigation systems for sure. people to either grow crops or to harvest drinking water all kinds of stuff so it's interesting it, it, it is because you mentioned it earlier we take that for granted i mean you walk up to the faucet turn it on and water comes out i mean yeah. you know that's all you got to do now imagine uh, if you had to pull up that pail of water while 50 undead people were chasing you <laughs> Uh, that would not be good. Be difficult, wouldn't it? Almost impossible. It'd be easier if you had a hand pump. Yes. And so how does that work? Anyway, so I was asking if your the well that you were with was like a circle of rope, or whether it was a uh, just a loose rope tied to a bucket. Because when I was researching the history of water pumps. One of the earliest versions of the water pump was actually a a chain pump where it's a okay. chain that loops together with discs along the chain that are held uh, together with um, however you want to call it. Like uh, I don't want to call them nuts or bolts, but watertight seals that connected them to the chain. So if you have a chain laying out and it's all connected, so it's a big circle. There were discs may, maybe every two or three feet. Okay. And they would make sure that the diameter of the disc was as wide as the well pipe in which they were planning to extract water. Okay. And then they would put a sprocket at the bottom of the well and a sprocket at the top of the well, and okay. they would pull the chain uh, I guess, however the well was positioned, I want to say counterclockwise, but it it doesn't really matter. You, you want to pull it so that the discs are coming out of the well, and then they go over the top of the sprocket and then back down into the well. And when they pull up into the actual well pipe, because they're the same diameter as the well, they capture sure. water between the discs. And as you sure. get it to the surface level then it pours off into a bucket. Sure, that makes sense. And so I wondered, you know, that's a pretty primitive design as well. So I wondered if they had implemented that or if they were still just no. using a singular bucket. Nope, singular bucket, that's it. Interesting. Well, yes. nobody knows exactly when water wells began being dug versus people living along rivers, but uh, it was obviously an early part of human history and would have been knowledge that was necessary before the advent of agriculture because to perform irrigation one would have to understand how to source water yes. uh, and again if you lived along a river then you could dig canals and and get uh your fields irrigated but if you were more inland on land that was perhaps more tenable for farming you'd have to find a way to water those crops. Sure. So you'd have to have a well and then perform an irrigation system. Uh, but by the 1400s, we had developed the beginning of the modern uh, water pump, which is a piston action, the same way that your car combustible engine is a piston action. Okay. So it's important to understand how a piston works um, a piston is basically a cylinder uh, that has a 
movable disc at the top of it that compresses and decompresses fluid. And the purpose of the moving action of the piston, uh, you can either use the piston to drive the compression and decompression of the fluid, or you can use um, suction to drive the compression and decompression of the piston. And all that okay. does is moves the disc up and down in the piston shaft, if sure. you can visualize that. Yeah, or you, yeah. in the case of a combustion engine, you can use ignition. So what they okay. do in a car, it, when you press on the gas pedal, you have the cylinder with the piston inside of it, and the gas is ignited. And when thing when gases heat up, they expand. We know this. this yes, we do scientific principle and the action of the expanding gas pushing up the disc of the piston pushes up a rod that is attached to that disc and turns the camshaft and the turning of that camshaft back in the olden days is a little bit different now uh rotated the axles of your car right now there's more mechanical uh pieces at play but in its simplest sense the whole point of getting the car to move was an action of igniting inside of those pistons over and over and over again. And then when they, once the wheels turned, it would compress the pistons and you would ignite the gas again. And then it would open, close, open, close, open, close, open, close. You do the same thing with a water pump. You stick a deep cylinder into a, a water bed beneath the soil. Okay. Uh, and you stick a disc within that cylinder and you on that disc put a valve that is on the top of the disc sorry this is a very visual <laughs> description so if you can imagine um like everybody's messed with their toilet before because it wasn't yes. working wasn't flushing Yes. When you take the top of the back of the toilet off and look down at the apparatus that actually makes the toilet flush, there's a valve there that when you rotate the flushing handle, it pulls up the valve and allows the water to escape. Yes. So in this case, the piston has a valve just like the, the piston disc has a valve just like that on it. Okay. And when you press the piston disc down, because there is water beneath the disc, it pushes that valve up and enters into the cylinder above the piston disc with the water that's below the piston disc. Does that make okay. sense? Yeah, it, it's basically pushing the water up and then uh, at and, that point in time, right. it gets into the pipe. Yes, and and so the there's already a fraction of the pipe that is submerged in water, and when you press the disc down into that submerged piece, it opens up the valve and water floods into the upper part of the cylinder. Sure. Now when you start pulling the the piston disc the opposite direction back towards the surface, then that valve is going to be pressed shut by the water that you've just let into that cylinder. Right. Does that, that make sense? Yes, it does. So now there's water on both sides of the cylinder and you're pulling yep. upward 
and you pull that water that is in the top part of the disc all the way up to where the spigot is that the water exits. Sure. And that is the simplest way of getting water extricated from the ground other than a bucket. It might be simpler than a bucket based on how hard the bucket was. Yeah, and so that was the the first design and that was with just a simple handle that you pulled directly up and directly down. And the two forces that are at play here are suction and lift. Suction sure. would be used to describe what happens when you pull the handle up towards the yeah. uh, away from the earth. Um, because as you create that space in between where the water line is in the cylinder and where you're actually pulling the handle to, there's no air beneath the disc in order to fill up that space. So there becomes a huge pressure differential. And we know right. from all of the podcasts that we've ever talked about, when there is a pressure or temperature differential, particles want to diffuse there. So if there's an empty space, which we can call a vacuum, beneath the disc that you're creating by pulling up the handle of the water pump, then the water that is below that pump is going to follow this the disc up to its maximum. And then when you sure. press it down, that valve will open, flood it with water, you'll pull it back up to release that water and suction up new water, you push it down and it'll refill it with water over and over and over again until you have as much water as you need. Right. Um, now, in order to do that, there's a second valve required and it is below the piston disc and within the submerged part of the cylinder so that you can create that vacuum. And that one, the vacuum opens up the valve and floods the middle section of the cylinder with water using the power of suction. And then once it's filled with water, then the valve naturally closes. Okay. There's huge limitations to this design. Uh, and one of them you actually highlighted in what you were talking about. And that is, this requires a human to be able to lift the weight of the water that they flood the upper cylinder with. Because right. when they are lowering the apparatus, the, the the piston disc down, there's no weight on top of it. And if there was, it would be helping you actually lower it. Sure. But as, as you pull it up after the upper part of the cylinder has been flooded with water, now you have to be able to lift whatever that amount is. Now, sure. do you know how many um, meters of water people are suspected to be able to carry or lift with a typical uh, water pump? How many meters of water? Yes. How deep can you place the piston if you want a human to be able to lift it up? Well... Based off of the weight of the water and a circumference of, let's say, 10 centimeters. Okay. I'm trying to do my, my conversion from... <laughs> to the... Uh, U.S. units of of things. It's about four uh, and a half <laughs> inches in diameter. <laughs> I would say meters would be 15. That would be 45 feet. Uh, yeah, right around there. I would say around there, about 15 meters. Uh, 
That's a good guess. And actually a 15 meter well depth makes sense. But half of that depth has to be used by the suction part of the um, system because humans can only lift about seven meters worth of water. Oh, wow. And in fact, the suction force can also uh, only work under... It's limited by the the pressure provided by Earth's atmosphere, right? Because to create a vacuum, you have to create a pressure differential, right? Uh, so that can on, that submerged part can only be seven meters deep. So you're looking at with a typical um, push pull water well, you're looking at a, a, a maximum of fifteen meter depth, which sure. does not reach most water beds and aquifers. Right. Uh, And so that presents a huge problem. And this is where you have to implement another piece of a successful water pump, which we call the mechanical advantage. All right. A mechanical advantage would be either a lever versus a standard uh, issue water pump, mechanical water pump that would have been built back in, you know, the 1400s, 1500s would have just been a rod that had a handle on it that you lift up and down, not an actual lever that is on a fulcrum that helps you uh, lift a bunch deeper, much more water at a a much quicker pace. Then there's also a flywheel, the physics of which I don't really want to get into, but basically (laughs) a flywheel is this magical device that mechanical engineers say should be competing with solar and wind for infinite conservable energy or i guess energy storage not not competing with solar and wind competing with batteries for energy conservation but it's basically just a spinning disc that uses the power of inertia and the centripetal force to keep spinning after you crank it so it it, it, yeah in theory there's friction so flywheels don't actually uh spin forever but yes in theory that's what mechanical engineers would like you to believe or as long as the amount of energy required to keep the flywheel turning is less than the amount of energy that it stores then then it's useful as a storage device but whatever um but it can also operate the action of the piston itself uh and this does happen sometimes so if you ever see a water pump that's got a big you know, circular protected section uh, encased in metal, there's probably a flywheel in there that's operating the piston for you. But generally what we would see is a lever. There's three types of levers um, or three classes of levers, one where the fulcrum is in the middle, which would be what we would use for a water pump where you have a heavy mass on one end and a lighter mass on one end and you find where the point of equilibrium is uh where the lever stands still and that's what we would that's where we would place the fulcrum can okay. you visualize that in your head it's like a yeah. teeter totter but instead of yeah. the middle being the middle imagine there's a fat and fat man on one end and a skinny man on one end you'd have to balance the plank of the teeter totter so that it sits perfectly equal despite their different weights Oh, okay. That that helps. That, that helps me visualize it. Right. And so that's, uh, I believe, a class two. doesn't really matter what the number is, but that's the type of fulcrum that we use in a water pump. 
Uh, the okay. other one would be uh, your foot, for example. If you stood on your tippy toes, that would be a fulcrum. You're placing weight on the extreme end, being your toes, in order to lift the mass of your entire body. Right. That's a type of lever action. Uh, and then the other one would be kind of the opposite of that. But anyway. We'll focus on what we need to for water pumps. We'll ha we can have our own lever podcast. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, so the invention of the lever, or at least not the invention, but the discovery of how to make levers helps us out a lot uh, because it actually, the longer you make a lever handle, the less force you need to apply because um, you've made the fulcrum distribute the mass much better. Right. And that makes the pumping action easier, so then you can do deep water wells. Uh, and they call these um, force pumps. Okay. So there's chain pumps. Direct action pumps would be the type where I was talking about lifting the handle up and down physically, and then the force right. pumps is the, the third option that allows you okay. to do deep wells. There's also diaphragms, uh, which is how our lungs work. So right. Still working with the pressure differential. You have a di diaphragm beneath your lungs in a rib cage. And when you breathe in, what you're actually doing is flexing that muscle so that it increases the size of your lungs. And when that happens, there's a, a the pressure in your lungs drops rapidly and it drops greater than the the atmospheric pressure. And so then air flows into your lungs. And then when you breathe out, you're, you push it that diaphragm back shut and push out the CO2 that is lingering in the lungs. Kind of cool. Uh, that is very cool. It's magical. Yes. Until you talk about it like that, then it's not so magical, but it's still highly sophisticated. So Very, very. Your diaphragm is a special little piece. And I don't think most people think about uh, your lungs being a vacuum for air, but that's really what they are. Your, nope. your diaphragm flattens itself so that your body just automatically absorbs all of that air and you do it without even thinking. It's the first thing we Absolutely. learn how to do as humans. It is. And when it becomes a challenge, it sucks. So yes, I can understand that. Yes. It's also the last thing we do as humans. It is. That's correct. That's kind of exciting. Uh, but you could do the same thing to force any fluid to enter any cavity. Uh, however, rubber diaphragms that you expand uh, so that they are suctioning in water are prone to failure, so they try not to implement those. And generally, when they do fail in rural systems, then they just abandon them and build a, a bucket well. A new, oh, or as I say, a new well, yes. Or a new well. Depends. Um, and hand pumps are, are obviously still a very large industry you can have them uh anywhere even in the parks of the city of chicago that i've gone to with joe they still have hand pumps that are operational because if you build yeah, them well they'll last forever yeah it's amazing how many of them do exist you know people you see them and one of the first things that happens i think is people get curious like oh what is this you know and people know it's a well but they don't really think about it and then they start pumping and water starts coming out and it especially when a little kid does it, you can see their eyes just get big. Like, wow, that's really cool. 
you know, so it's, it's kind of crazy that they do exist all over the place still and are used. Yeah. And water pumps then obviously with the advent of electricity, we were able to automate them pretty quickly because all you had to do was automate uh, that process of the piston moving up and down. So instead of having to pump it, uh, you don't have to at all. Right. But we also still use hand pumps in a variety of ways. One of those being uh, if you go camping and you're using a water source to be safe, you yep. probably want to filter that water. Yep. And the most common tool that people would use in that situation is a little hand pump water filter yes. where uh, you can pull the the handle up very easily but then you have to press the water through a filter. Uh, and so it's actually very hard to close the pump. And that's actually how water pumps all are. Uh, because as you are pressing the lever, uh, then that's when you're forcing the valve to be open to get the spigot out. Obviously, that wouldn't sure. be true for a direct action uh, water pump where you're, you're just pulling... Uh, what looks like those little TNT things in the cartoons up and down oh, yes. over yep. and over again. That's what they look like versus having sure. a, a lever on one side that you open and close. Um, but that would be more rare uh, in a uh, hand water pump to have it be a direct action. You probably would have it be a pump or a, yeah, a um, force pump. Sure. Another example of a direct action pump, though, would be the pumps that are on hand sanitizer bottles. Oh, yeah, yeah. You are pushing down to fill a small little valve that you push open, uh, have it accept and suction in whatever material you have, and it fills up that volume so you have to pump multiple times and you get the same volume out each time right i think that i think what i'm gonna have to do after this podcast is i'm gonna have to go and look at one of those because you know many times those are clear bottles right so you can actually see all the pieces and parts of the pump so it'll be interesting to actually pay attention to how it works now that you've talked about it yeah so basically you press down but the hand sanitizer doesn't come down, come out of the thing until, um, well, it happens when you press down, but when you get a brand new bottle of hand sanitizer, you have to pump it a few times before it yes. squeezes anything out, right? You have to prime the pump. That's exactly it. So you are creating that suction as soon as you release the handle of the pump, because there's a spring yep. in there that pushes the handle back open. It does all the work for you. And that yes. creates the suction. And if you do that four or five times, then you get enough of the liquid, let's say it's Purell, to pass through the valve up into the shaft and go all the way and fill the entire cylinder and then out the little nozzle. Yeah. In a similar way, when a water pump has been sitting for a long time, the water in the pump may have evaporated. Um and you would have to pump it five or six or seven times before you even see any water coming out. Or if it's been unused, but there's still water in it, you might want to pump it five or six times and get all of the old nasty water onto yeah. the ground before you start filling up your bucket. Absolutely. 
anyway, it's a good, it's a, this is a better visual topic, but I tried my best to give basic definitions. And I, I think without getting too deep into anything else, we, we can wrap it up. No. So I, I like the idea of the, that you just talked about here with looking at a, you know, hand sanitizer bottle. Cause that, when you gave me that visual, it was a lot easier for me to, to understand that. So I think that's great. You know, talking through what the, the actual science is behind it is one thing. And then seeing the actual visual that really brings it home. So I, I think that's a great thing. And then, I mean, you talked about the actual hand pumps that we, we see out and about. I think that most people who will be listening to this podcast, mom, will have seen those and used those at some time in the past. So I think that that also will be a good visual. And the other one that you hit on was, you know, when you go out camping and you're using the, um, the pump to, you know, make sure that the water is, is clear and clean. We actually did use something like that, a, a small pump like that when we were camping. And I, as you're talking about that, I could visualize exactly where the water would flow, how it would fill up, and then how it was forced through the filter. And in my head, I could see exactly how that was working. I love that. So it's yep. great to understand what the science is behind it. Thank you for taking the time to listen. I think we should move on to This Week in Media. All right, I kind of already did mine. The Walking Dead. I'm, I don't even want to say how many seasons I am in already, but I'm doing, <laughs> doing great work, and you'll hear about it again next week. Is it safe to say that you at least have some of the last season available? Oh, way more than that. There's 11 seasons, right. so I, right. I can't work Check. that fast. But I'm, right. I, let's say I'm halfway through. You're getting there. All right. All right. Well, I'll cover mine. So I talked about this last year about this time, but it's well worth repeating. So uh, recently, your mother and I went to the VNSA book sale here in Phoenix. And that is a charity book sale where people will donate books that they've read and then they get resold. And so as we talked about last time, this is huge. And what I mean by huge is it's not just, you know, a couple hundred books, it's thousands and thousands of books and thousands of people come to this. So it starts on a Saturday and ends on Sunday. Last year, your mother and I went on Sunday afternoon, probably uh, let's call it one o'clock ish. And we walked right in. This time we got there a little bit earlier because we figured we'd go to the book sale first. And then we would go to lunch. Well, we had forgotten how busy it really was. So this time when we got there, we had to stand in line to get into the, the facility probably 30 minutes before we could get in. There's that many people. There's probably 500 people ahead of us waiting to get in. So they had to wait for a certain number of people to come out and then let people in. Then you get to see all these books. And so we each had a list of books that we wanted to get. And I think last year we walked out of there with 42 books. And I think we paid $24 for them. So think about that. And this year, I think we walked out with about 42 or 43 books and again, paid about, you know, $28, $29 for them. I got one of the things I'll be talking about later this year is I got the whole series written by James Clavell, Shogun series. So I'm super excited to start reading that. That's going to probably be starting in June for me, but I'm super excited because they had all the books there for that, as well as several other ones that I had on my list. So I, one of these days, it'd be great if you were able to be down here so you could uh, visit it and experience it, but it's quite an amazing thing for them to do that. And it's really cool to see how many people 
still want to read books nowadays. Uh, it was it was impressive because it wasn't just folks that were your mom's age and, and and older. It was people of all ages that were there. There was you know elementary school kids and high school kids, college kids, all there, as well as adults uh, looking to pick books up. So I would, if you're ever in the area around the second or third weekend of February, anybody who's listening to this, I would highly encourage you to go to that because it's, first of all, the experience is amazing, but also just seeing all of those books is just kind of heartwarming as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I think people are kind of getting it now. I think with like the advent of TV, there was a lot of like mania around, oh, we're all going to become stupid. No one's going to read books. And like the first part of that is, and the internet made that even more pronounced, but I, one, I don't think like, I don't, I have a a hard time believing that like we can't replace the information, nonfiction in books with information that we can consume also by reading the internet um but two like reading fiction shouldn't be associated with any kind of increased intelligence it's just like a different medium than tv or movies and i think young people right. i think they get that where they they go to a movie to feel what it's like to read a movie they go and watch tv to feel what it's like to watch a series but books are special because the writer has complete control. There's no financing department that has anything to say about how long the book should be or what the book should be about, what they can include. If a character needs to die off, there's no contracts with the characters in a book. Like the, the art form lends itself to more in depth, like examinations of human nature and, and real stories about things you you would never be able to imagine. I don't know. I think they're special. And I think that people my age are, are getting that. I don't think that that's been lost just because we grew up on the internet. And I think a lot of people were afraid of that, but I actually know more young people who read than I know people your age who read. You're, you know what? I think that, uh, I think I can agree with that. Cause I know that obviously your mother and I read quite a bit, but there's a lot of people I know who like they'll read, one book every three years. It's, it's amazing to me. And, and like you said, it, it's not about, you know, you're more intelligent because you're a reader or not, but it, it can, it, it, I think it expands your mind in a different way, potentially, because uh, you're having to visualize it in your head versus maybe seeing it on the screen. Not that, that a movie can't make you think because it absolutely can, uh, but it's just kind of a different medium and it allows you to use your brain in a different way. Yeah. And I also think the best part about books is the lack of a time limit. Like you're not going to have a TV show that's longer than an hour and a half or two hours if it's Twin Peaks. And you're not going to have a movie that's longer than seven hours if it's a um, Scorsese film. So, (laughs) but like a book can, it it can occupy whatever space it wants to. Like for Tolstoy, it can be an eight month journey and for Vonnegut, it can be a three day journey. So it's, it's great. It's really cool. Yes, absolutely. How about something you learned this week, dad? So chainsaws, do you know what chainsaws were originally invented for? Um, 
Well, gee, I would have thought that they would have been invented to replace the the horizontal. Actually, no, maybe the vertical. I would have thought it would have been to cut out like the vertical V's in a tree. Is that really not what it's for? Well, that's how they're used now, but that's not why they were invented. See, I would have thought that somebody was like, hey, we could do logging a lot faster if we had if we used an engine to do it. So yeah, that did become the reason that they were being used and became much more prolific, but they were originally invented for helping with childbirth. What? That doesn't sound right. (laughs) Well, yeah. So uh, before the invention of the uh, cesarean section, obviously babies had to be passed through the birth canal. And depending on what the situation was, if they were too large or they were breech and they couldn't fit, they would get stuck in the pelvis. And so they needed a way to remove portions of cartilage and ligaments and potentially bone in the pelvic region. And so a couple of doctors invented the chainsaw to do that work because it was a situation where obviously there wasn't a lot of anesthesia. And so being able to use a knife and cutting into bone and ligaments uh, could take a very long time. So they invented the chainsaw to make it a lot quicker and allow for the removal of the baby a lot quicker and hopefully reduce the amount of extended pain that was happening to the mother while this birth was happening. So this was invented in the 1780s by two doctors, John Aiken and James Jeffrey. They, like I said, invented to remove part of the pelvic bone and make things less time consuming. The original one was a hand crank with a chain on it. And it looked a lot like they said, a, uh, like a modern day kitchen knife with a chain that was tied to it. And then over time they started to make it, um, make it larger and a little more robust. And then they saw that this was working well for that. And someone said, wow, we could use this, like you said at the beginning here, to cut down trees. (laughs) Yes. And to cut down trees and make things a lot smoother from a logging perspective. But the original use of this and the original invention was to help with childbirth. So you're saying that doctors are smarter than loggers? I don't know. <laughs> They're more inventive than loggers? Uh, sure, I will say that. I will right. say that in this circumstance. I'm going to tell the the log skidding union about you. <laughs> tell them that you're trying to step on their territory. There you go. Uh, I just have a quicker one. Do you know what year we began referring to hurricanes by alphabetical names? Oh, yeah. That's That's a great question. So I am going to say that that was in 1922. It actually wasn't until 1950 when forecasters began using that. And they were actually using... Every every single year, they were using the actual um, international phonetic alphabet. At the, oh, so sure. every year, it would be the 1951 
Hurricane Abel and then the 1952 Hurricane Abel because uh, A is for Abel, B is for Baker, C is for Charlie, whatever. Yes. Uh, and it wasn't until they started using female English language names. Uh, it was 1953 when they did that. So, I oh, mean, wow. that was actually pretty quick, but it took them a while. And that's, uh, ever that's since then, they, uh, they've been doing that. And then they started using alternating male and female names uh, in 1979. So for a while, it was just scorned women. And now it's scorned men and women. There you go. Well, it, it is interesting because I don't know that they've had uh, duplicate names. And maybe they have, but, you know, I don't remember there being a bunch of duplicate names over the years. So I know that they've gotten creative with, with them uh, as they're going through. Now, I don't know, have they ever gotten to an X and a Y and a Z for, for hurricanes or was your not research? Sure. That, that, I didn't, that I didn't, didn't look into that. It was just fun, fun fact of the week, not a whole research topic. Sure. No, I like it though. That's good. Yep. So it's just the ways forecasters keep life destructive weather events, light and fun. <laughs> there you go. All right. And I think that's going to wrap up this episode of You'll Understand When You're Younger. Thanks for hanging out with us. It's a little bit quicker one today, but that's all right. Uh, I want to say a special thank you to our man, Ted Heineshevitz, who wrote the song that we use for our intro and outro. His, the song is called You and I off of his album, It's Fine, and you can listen to it anywhere music is listened to. On the stage, on Spotify, probably just do Spotify. Thanks, Ted. Take us out.